with my favorite brainiac, not just smart for a chick, super, super smart chick. I love Courtney Turner, and she is here to give us Tavistock 101. How, hi, Courtney. How are you? Hi. Well, thank you for that. I, I love talking to you as well. Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? Fine, thank you. And I actually meant to pull out from this. I put all my books on the shelf for the first time since I moved, and I realized like I should have a 12-step program. And because I just never stopped buying books. And my friend, Anthony Raimondo, who's a guest also, I think he thinks that there's like a libertarian fetish about collecting books. I have so many, like John Coleman, I have so many books that are relevant to what's going on um, with Tavistock. And I think of Tavistock as like the element of they, that's the, the social engineering psych arm of they, like the World Health Organization, Bill and Melinda Gates, that, that's the, the pharma medical arm. This is the psych social engineering arm, but it has a long history. It's almost 100 years old, I think. I want you to just tell us what you think are the big, big picture. I've got a few little questions for you, but I think we're just, uh, I'll just give me a date. Give me the fire hose. Give me the Courtney Turner <laughs> fire hose. Fire hose. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I will think, yeah, I, I think there might be like a libertarian thing. This is just a total little side note, but I was talking, um, I interviewed Patrick Byrne recently and I actually just recorded his audio book for the, that article that he had written for the Capital Times magazine based on his life story. And, uh, I was like, it's great, but it's 90 pages. So I don't know how many people will actually read it. Uh, but you know, have you thought about like a movie, an audiobook? And so I pitched both to him, but we actually did the audiobook already. We're in the process of editing it. And, when all this, just to say, yeah, super exciting. So that should be out within the next month or so. Um, but then I was talking to him about, you know, because we were talking about Bill Barr. So you're probably familiar with Donald Barr, right? Donald Barr was his father, who was the headmaster at uh, Dalton High School. Oh, I know all about, I did some research on Bill Barr back in the day, like Katie Barr the door. Like we don't want, I just, there was so much about him that was fishy and all of that. Not to be confused with, I think, Bob Barr, who was right. a libertarian candidate <laughs> in Atlanta. <laughs> but yeah, Bill Barr is sketchy. He's kind of a libertarian too. And so I was telling him that, you know, of course, Donald like hired college dropout, Jeffrey Epstein, math and physics, right? But right <laughs> after Epstein left, Donald Barr writes this book, which Patrick actually bought for me because it's super expensive because books are crazy. Space yeah. relations? Yes. Wow. I know. Is it fiction? Is it sci-fi? It is fiction. It's it's like sex trafficking with aliens, but the characters oh seem oddly like Elaine Maxwell and some familiar characters. Uh, they seem to have some similarities too, but yeah, it's like alien uh, sex trafficking. Uh, okay. About this book, and I was like, but it's really expensive. And he was, you know, really generous. And he's like, well, you should have it so you can give us the dirt. So, yes, they are expensive. And the more you talk about them, the more expensive they get. And I just, those things are weird. There's a couple of fiction books that have some from these super deep state guys or insider guys that there have to be a reason for it because they're not wasting their time. There's one about Oklahoma City, oh. which was written by the brother of the sitting governor when OKC happened. I heard and it this. was yes. all a, yes. And it was it was about pinning it on Islamic terrorism, but in the end, I think they decided to pin it on domestic terrorism, like uh 
there was another one like that. I think S hook or whatever. I can't remember. There was another one they were going to do. You know, they flip it around at the last minute. They have a couple of options. But other than that, it was like eerily similar to what really happened. So I, I, I think it's I'll have to read. Programming, which is right up the alley of Tavistock, yes. actually. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yes. Start, yeah, fire away. Good segue. All right, so I figured we would start with, because as you were saying, it's kind of the psychological arm. Um, although they do go into psychiatry, which is kind of the medical, and there are a lot of overlaps with things like the World Health Federation and, uh, you know, some of the NGOs that are involved in some of the medical, you know, became like Tavistock actually became the Tavistock medical psychology. So there is overlap there, but it is a psych- psychological arm. So I thought we would start with Wilhelm Wundt. So Wilhelm Wundt, uh, who was known as the, grandpa- uh, the grandfather of the field of psychology, the uh, founder of American psychology is known as known to be William James, but there's a connection there because Wilhelm Wundt is also the father of the PhD program. So he himself had no real formal education. That's why I say the PhD is like the pinnacle of indoctrination. Because he was just getting a PhD. Because I always think that's funny too. It's like a doctor of philosophy. I have a law degree. That's a doctor of juris, whatever. Like, am, am I a doctor? Like, it's just so, it's pretty funny. And I knew plenty of PhDs were like, yeah, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. It's kind of like um, Edmund, Edward, uh, Edward Bernays's white coat when he was on like I think it was on David Letterman or something, and they're like, yeah, just because I wear a white coat, you believe what I say Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, the illusion of authority. And so he created the PhD program. Um, He Now, just a little factoid about him that's interesting. His grandfather was Kirschenrat, and then I can't, Kirschenrat Carl Casimirbunt, and he was a member of the Illuminati. He went by Raphael. That was his code name in the Illuminati. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So this does not necessarily mean that William was, you know, subscribing to the principles of the Illuminati. However, it is worth noting that he, um, so just so that people, because I know people are going to want to know, like, how do you know that he was, it was actually written in the Illuminati Provincial Report from Utica. Um, and that was September 1782. Um, so in there, it says that his code name is Raphael. And uh, I thought Utica, I just always think it's so interesting. My mom, who was a psychologist, and she always says, research is me-search. So I always find, like, uh, it's so interesting, all these little connections. I went to Hamilton College, and that was right near, is right outside Utica, New York. Yeah, Utica. I, I'm from upstate New York, and I always wonder, like, what, why were these places thriving hundreds of years ago or a hundred years ago or whatever. I assume there was some kind of trade, the water, I lumber. I don't know. We have to have something up there. Uh, an industrial in uh, Utica. Yeah. Okay. I think the, the train industry maybe. Well, but the trains are there for carrying stuff. What's the stuff? But yeah, steel. Yeah, and steel, stuff I think. Timber. I just feel like back then, there, it, like we weren't a service place. Why are people there? But yeah, so. But yeah, so. Utica, and then we'll we'll get to this later, but I just think it's worth noting also another connection to Utica. Well, Hamilton's close to Utica. I mean, it was actually in Clinton, New York. But Edward Bernays, the double nephew of Sigmund Freud, and also one of the primary psychologists for Tavistock, who wrote the book Propaganda, right? His nephew is Mark Brand. Oh, I know who he is. You know who he is, okay? He founded Netflix. Yes, but he also <laughs> went to Hamilton College. 
Oh, wow, really? So there's a little hotbed. And I think the mayor of Ithaca is uh, like hardcore sorrows dude like oh, it's yeah there's stuff going on up there yeah, yeah it's weird there, there must be like some sort of a lodge up there cornell is that. somewhere around there yeah right? cornell is like 45 minutes away yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so okay so his grandfather was the was rafael and the illuminati um and then uh his student so he has it you, uh, you might have heard of like the leipzig connection and how you say it, Leipzig connection, right? Leipzig. Leipzig, yeah. L-E-I-P-Z-I-G, Leipzig, Leipzig University, right? So William Bunt has all of these students. He Now, he has no formal training, but he gives out all these PhDs. And so, of course, <laughs> his primate right, he starts the PhD program, even though I, he has no formal <laughs> education. Uh, and he, but he was known for, like, medicalizing and, you know, I don't know what the word would be, but, like, scientizing psychology, this is why he's thought of as the grandfather because he kind of made it into what they deem to be more of a science. I would argue. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I would argue that it's not actually a science. Um, yeah, well, it may be morphing into a science. I think it is historically a social science, but they yeah. are doing a lot of research on, like, uh, you know, using psychotropic drugs. And I mean, I'm not advocating for it or not, but I think they're like, doing actual studies now of like, oh, this turns this switch on and that's what that makes you do. Yeah. So I think it, it, it may be getting more scientific, but I would say sociology and psychology are Yeah, just, the, the know, foundings really weren't. And I even would argue even with those experiments, it's like, it's kind of, they work backwards, they reverse engineer. So they're they're doing a lot of manipulation, right? Bernays' whole whole premise was making uh, opinion making. That's actually what they call polling, and that comes out of Tavistock. Oh, that's hilarious! They called it opinion making. They didn't call it like surveying the mass opinions. <laughs> right. It's like um, building consensus. Yep. It's not about getting people to compromise on their positions. Right. It's about getting people to get on board with what you want. But I would say like about the science thing, defining what is science would help. And I would think, I, I think a fundamental tenet of science is to do experiments, to predict outcomes and do experiments based on your hypothesis, which is totally unethical in any deep way for for humans. So it really, even if they wanted it to be a science, they couldn't actually do it in an ethical way. Okay, well, it depends also. Um, I mean, I would say science is that you, you test the hypothesis, right? But there should be controlled studies. And so you have to look at the method, the methodology of what they're doing. And a lot of times they're not all that um, unbiased. So, okay. Yeah. I have to show you this book. Okay. His, it's called Rhythm, Riots, and Revolution. Ooh. It's, it's a, you know, definitely has some like racist stuff in there, which I did not like. Oh. It's from the 60s, but it talks about the real psychological experiments that they could do in the Soviet Union because they didn't have the kind of strictures that we have. So they kind of like offsite it and then bring it back in. He wrote another book called Communism, Hypnotism, and the Beatles. So I'm guessing this David Noble or David Nobel, this is this book is impossible to find. You can't even is Google he, it. Like, is he in part of the Nobel family as in Nobel Prize? No, it's spelled oh, okay. differently. It's N-O-E-B-E-L. He seems like kind of a Bible Belt kind of guy, but this is from the, the, the book was $1. So it was definitely from the 60s. 
but I would just, yeah, he's an evangelist. Yeah. Uh, And it's, and it's, and it smacks of that. However, it's got a lot of information in there and it seems like a lot of Tavistock stuff. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, communism and the Beatles. I'll have to try that. Track that one down. Okay. Okay. So he had. So his psych lab students included people like Pavlov. Right. This is where we get a lot of the like you know the Pavlovian uh, experiments. The Skinner box is kind of a derivative of that. Right. You know Skinner's daughter, who helped develop the Skinner box with him as a child, committed suicide. Really? I don't think mm-hmm. I did know that. Recently? Yeah, no. I believe so. I can't no, but I mean as an adult. As an adult. Like I'm just not sure the Skinner box was the best way to raise a kid, but you know, <laughs> it's not necessarily a person's parent who's at fault for something like that, but Yeah, probably you know, not. Just saying. <laughs> um so William James, of course, who is known as the father of American psychology. Um and Stanley G. Hall. Now Stanley G. Hall is interesting because he was the mentor to John Dewey who was also largely instrumental in uh, bringing the modern-day education system to the United States, which was predicated uh, largely on the three-tier Prussian model. Um, are you fam- you're familiar with that, the three-tier Prussian model? Um, I'm not because I was distracted. This is terrible. This is bad podcasting. I just want to say that she says that's not true, that she was not raised in a Skinner box, and I'm not that it's a widely spread myth. So I've got to correct the record on that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to look into that, though. No offense, Courtney, but children of psychiatrists and psychologists can definitely have, uh, you know, aren't necessarily better raised. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, if uh, research is me search, then typically they're trying to figure out some sort of, uh, you know, solutions to their um, potential pathologies or pathological tendencies. Uh, but right. I think now, having done the studying I've done about the origins and the genesis of uh, psychology and the field itself, the indoctrination alone, I think, really, I used to think that people went into psychology because they were trying, you know, it's a study of the, 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 the soul, essentially, right? But what I think has happened is really they've these people were really engaged in mystical practices. They, you know, is essentially like they they wanted to do magic. And uh, yeah, when you look at, I mean, Freud, uh, Jung was a mystic. Freud was interested yes. in things like alchemy, like mentalism. They wanted to be able to read people's minds and control their minds. And they were looking at all sorts of, whether it be through drugs or through, um, you know, practice, therapeutic practices, ways that they be able to have this kind of mind control, mind power. So it really is kind of form magic witchcraft. Yeah. I, I want to plug that into my overall opinion of psychology and sociology for a long time now has been that they were developed to disconnect you from spiritual trusting, but no, the opposite from trusting the evidence of your senses. So so you can say, oh, this guy did that because he's jealous or he's covetous, he stole my thing, whatever. And they'll say, no, like there, there are deeper meanings for this. Or you'll say like welfare doesn't work because people will just not work to get welfare. It's like, no, people want to work. They need self-esteem. They won't really exploit the process like that. It's like, yeah, but in my experience of what happens in human relations and human interactions and my own motivations, it seems pretty straightforward. And I feel like psychology and sociology are there to justify irrational or illogical policies and directions. And it help, and they have to have you disconnect trusting your own 
senses. So I would agree with that, but that that comes later. It's actually it comes out of they call Tavistock called it segmentation, um, and this is part of how they create groups. Uh, so that you identify with the groups. We saw this with like the Frankfurt School. Uh, of course, they, you know, codified it into much more of a systematized philosophy. But a lot of the original experiments come out of Tavistock and they they call it the segmentation. So I think there's a lot of truth in that. And th- this is where like the group dynamics come into play. And there they were studying how people become irrational in groups. They were testing it. Of course, this is to, it's always under the guise of research and testing, but they, I, we see later it did become weaponized. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right in that. But in the origins of it, what I really think it was is they were creating these, uh, you know, sec. I used to say secular, but I would actually just call it uh, esoteric, occultic uh, solutions to spiritual problems. So they're pulling people away from what is interesting, right? Because if you look uh, previous, you know, in prior time before the fields of social science, people would go to their uh, spiritual religious leaders to solve a lot of these problems of the soul, right? And when, with the advent of psychology, now they're going to a therapist and they would do, right? right? That's my mother hates that. And I, I was just telling somebody on air, I think T's, Snyder, that um, my uncle, who was a priest, gave me a book, Plato, not Prozac, yes. and it was about you know it was a it was philosophical. It was it, it, and I think it's right actually. I I think so too. So Dewey was a so the three tier Prussian model is uh, just really you know briefly because that's a whole rabbit hole. But um, it was after the Battle of Jena in 1807 they lost the in, during the Napoleonic Wars they lost the battle. And they realized they lost it because the soldiers rebelled. And why did they rebel? Because they were critical thinkers. So they decided they wanted to create an education system to breed mindless, uh, obedient soldiers. That's literally the translation of what they had decided. And so they created this three-tier system, which is very much what our public school, the United States public school system, is predicated upon. That just blew my mind because I might have mentioned this to you before, but I, not in this context, and it pr- finally makes sense to me. Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations says, oh, liberty, liberty, no government, blah, 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 but we need public schools. Otherwise, we'll have, you know, uneducated soldiers. And I'm thinking, why would you want educated soldiers? Like, that's the opposite of what you would want. And of course, that's the exactly what the education is just a euphemism for something else. Indoctrination, dumbing down. Wow, that really circles, squares the circle. And it's predicated on militaristic principles, right? This is why we have a bell that sounds to, so you're programmed. It's very jarring, right? This is trauma-based mind control. The bell rings. You freeze. Okay, run off to the next class, right? It's all of these. That's just one example. But there's all, like, they dictate when you can go to the bathroom. Yeah, and and learning is so unfun with them. Oh, like, yeah. it's so unfun, and learning is so fun. So fun. <laughs> I mean, so fun. I mean, look, we do it for, for kicks, like, yeah, you know. exactly. Yeah. I'm like, I, I, yeah, like, this is, ri- every time I dive into this Tavistock stuff, I'm like, okay, I could spend my life just studying this, and. Yes. Yeah, it is fun. It's riveting. It's, a, it's the study of human nature, really. Yeah, you have to go out of your way to make it, like, incredibly tediously boring. It reminds me of a Monty Python skit where John Cleese is the teacher, and he, and 
and it's like sex ed day. So he gets his wife in there and they're literally having sex on his desk. And the kids are like throwing spitballs and passing notes. And he's like, would you kids just pay attention? This is getting out of control. And it's like, of course, if it was that interesting, they would pay attention. It's the the reality is that it's always incredibly boring. And I would say, yeah, it doesn't have to be. It's like the song, Another Brick in the Wall, right? Yes. Oh, that's the best. The best. Very telling. So uh, Dewey was very instrumental. And so also worth noting, he was the co-author of the Humanist Manifesto. Ooh, yeah. That is an end of spiritualism. Yes. In 1933. And uh, it was, uh, so he was... Like he was the co-author of that, and it was also very similar to. So what, this is to tie back to uh, Wilhelm Wundt, and you know, I was saying it's not. It doesn't necessarily follow just because his father, uh, his uh, grandfather, was in the Illuminati that he necessarily carried out these principles. However, because one of his main disciples was uh, this uh, John, James John Dewey, who exported the education system, and Dewey's principles were very similar to Adam Bysoft. Right, the whole "do what thou wilt" um, is very similar to a lot of the principles that are in the original Illuminati manifesto. That "do what thou wilt" is really undermining our kids' sanity. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's a very Nietzschean, like will to power type of. But it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. Everyone can't do that, or you hate each other, and then you're unhappy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I, I do have some great books on Dewey and stuff, too. Keep talking. Okay, yeah. Dewey, Dewey's fascinating. So then, 1886, Freud comes up with his talking cure model. And this is kind of the, this is really the uh, foundation for Tavistock. It's one of their primary methods. This is where we get, like, talk, psych, talk therapy, talk psychology, and it became the signature along with the psychotropic drugs. So this is why I say it really was both. You know, they did the talking cure, but then technology and medicine advances, and of course, they they merged the two. Then we get to, uh, all right, let me just make sure. I don't. I guess I don't have to go exactly chronologically, but there was just so much, and I was, my notes were all out of order. I'll let you look at your notes while I tell people about this book that I just pulled off my shelf called The Makers of the Modern Mind by Thomas P. Neal, N-E-I-L-L. And it's four, eight, 12 guys, including Dewey, Freud, um, Darwin, etc. And it's just, actually, Catholic priests recommended this to me, but it was pretty mainstream. Like, it, it's not super conspiranoid, but... It's really, really great. Highly recommend Makers of the Modern Mind by Thomas Neal, N-E-I-L-L. That's how I first learned about Dewey. Okay. But in around like 1912, 1913, they're already advising Wilson. But before we get to that, so there was the, 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 okay, Tavistock Institute of Human Relations is what it's called now. But there's many precursors and there's many offshoots. So, it started out at the Wellington House, and it was known as the British Propaganda Bureau. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and they, this is why I always say it's always done under the guise of defense, because their justification for this was that Germany had a propaganda bureau. They couldn't let Germany get ahead, so they had to create a propaganda bureau for Great Britain. So they create this propaganda bureau, 
uh, at the Wellington House, which was also known as the London Headquarters of National Insurance Commission. So I just think that's interesting that all of this seems to be tied to insurance. I feel like, you know, the original uh, insurance was like kind of a cartel to protect the the East Indian British companies, you know, the drug companies, right? Essentially, like that back then, the drugs were different. It was like opium and uh, sugar and caffeine and that sort of thing. But <laughs> Wow, sugar. <laughs> yeah, sugar. <laughs> but it was nice. because they were creating a consumeristic model and they knew the sugar was addictive. Wow. So it was. I mean, not not to say that like all sugar, it's not a drug in that sense, but it was, they knew it had addictive properties and they were building a consumerist model to foster dependency. And they did know that. Um, so yeah, but I just, so I thought that was interesting. And it was uh, Masterman who was the chairman. So he invited 25 authors to come. And over the years, they actually published over 1,600 pamphlets during the war, and it was they, they had all agreed, to, and it was kept secret until 1935, they had all agreed that they would write uh, books and pamphlets that would uh, promote the government uh, point of view, and particularly to side with Great Britain getting into World War I. That was the primary purpose of this British Propaganda Bureau was to garner the acquiescence from the Brit- British people and the American people to engage in World War One. Surprisingly, that was not a very popular thing previously. So they had, and then it was during, I think it was 19, I'm trying to find the exact date of the Creole Commission, um, 1919. Okay, so this is when Bernays and Lipman were hired uh, and they were brought into the Creole Commission, which their primary mission was to sway the opinion in favor of war on the side of Britain. And so they, and this is where they weaponized the term isolationist. And I always think about that. Oh, really? Yeah. They had, because that was their way of kind of, kind of like the way the CIA weaponized the term conspiracy theorist to avert investigation Mm -hmm. to the Warren Commission. They did that with, Tavistock did it with the term isolationist. So, you know, it was like a dirty word. If you were an isolationist, then, you know, obviously you didn't want to engage in the war and that was a bad thing. So... That was uh, one of the things that they did. Um, they had brought on, it was in 1919 that Edward Bernays was brought on as the director of Tavistock. And as we said, he's the double nephew of Sigmund Freud. He used a lot of Freudian principles in order to uh, you know, manipulate public opinion. And or he's credited with being like the father of uh, public relations. I think Willie Munzenberg deserves a lot of that credit as well. He doesn't get really recognized, but definitely I, I think he was largely responsible, but certainly not to undermine Bernays because he was very involved. Mm-hmm. But it was Bernays and Lippmann, Lippmann, who was the journalist who codified Walter Lippmann. Yeah. Yep, Walter mm-hmm. Lippmann. Yep. So. Um, right. And they, they together, they, they codified and applied in a scientific manner. So they kind of figured out what were the uh, strategic principles that could be ex- executed in order to create these mass marketing campaigns. So it was, you have government propaganda for war, you have the drug importation, you have 
the consumption, are, are you suggesting that's all a continuum or they're a collaboration? Because I saw the Rockefeller Foundation was involved, but also the British government. And, you know, so is it just a, a collaboration or did they pass it off one to the other and maybe... You know, yes, there's a lot of different factions back then. Both um, the Rockefellers. So, so the Wellington House, when it first started, was, you know, the founding of uh, the Wellington House was like Lord Rothmuir, Lord Rod, uh, Rockcliffe, um, who else was Milner, uh, oh. the Crown. Um, hmm. Who else was it? It was the Rockefellers had a, a bit of an involvement in the founding, but they weren't. Um, they come in later with their grants, right. really. Okay. I yeah. Understand. So it sounds like the British government was in bed with their own industry. Obviously, I mean, that's pretty clear anyway. But yeah. And they were both on the same page of where they what they wanted to use this for. Yes. Oh, yeah. This was definitely, I mean, the Crown was largely involved in the uh, origins. Um, but yeah, there was definitely the Milners and uh, Milners. The Lord Rothmere, Lord Rothcliffe, and I'm not. I'm blanking on who else it was. I'll have to look up in the original. Yeah, right. no, but I I get the idea. Yeah. So it's a statistical yeah. flyers. Yeah, yeah, and I guess when you put it in terms of the crown rather than say the British government, it's very easy to visualize that. Yes, we're talking about um, individuals, entities, families, whatever you want to say, who have their interests, their economic interests, and an ability to shape the direction of the country. Yeah. So and to access the resources that the you know tax dollars or whatever it is. Yeah. So it, when you think of it that way, as the British, as the crown, as lords, um, and the companies that they established, it's easier to understand it as not even a continuum, but like the same entities. Really. It's the same it's entities. Really, just yeah. one thing. And I wouldn't even care as much about if if it hadn't become not necessarily Tavistock, but just generally like the world power, if it didn't become even detached from the people. So when it was actually the crown and British lords or whatever, making a lot of British companies successful on the world stage, I feel like it's possible that would benefit their people. But now I feel like <laughs> it's an international plot that is conspiring to keep, to leave behind all the people of the world, you know, Americans should go backwards. People in the UK should go backwards. Speaking to the Milner Fabian thing we talked about and how London is just a, 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 it's, it's not a metropolis. It's a cosmopolis. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and even from the origins, even when it was at the Wellington house, I mean, they were very instrumental in manipulating the opinions of the American people too. So it was not just the British people, right? Because, okay. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, they had uh, Bernays and Lippmann come and be part of the Creole commission. They oversaw Wilson uh, and advised him on how to, you know, essentially the, the propaganda to get people engaged and support the war. And when I was reading the hidden history of World War One, I, I forget the big lord who did, I don't know if it was Milner or what, one of those guys said, and he was really high, uh, prominent politician mm -hmm. type, And but privately he said, like, the people are, you know, we've heard this before, they're just cannon fodder. I don't care, I have contempt for them. Mm -hmm. we, we need to, like, worry what they think about, but only for this reason. And, yeah, so the idea that even then there was any alignment of interest just because they were all actually British, that they might benefit the British people, no, I, I think that was not true. And plus, they were actually literally using them as, practically literally as cannon fodder, like, oh, with the were. cannons, throwing them, trench warfare. I mean, what could, it's almost... 
it, it, it's almost like nothing could be less humane in a war scenario than trench warfare. Like if you avoid that with chemical weapons, like avoid that at all costs. At all but costs. They do their own people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we get to so that's like through the war. And they're, you know, they were largely, and that was initially what they were founded under the auspices of, was to manipulate the opinions to get people to support, mostly the British and the American, to support uh, the First World War and to engage. Because they really, they would they would have had too much resistance otherwise. So you that was the Wellington House, the British Propaganda Bureau. So they, they started off, I mean, and they were known as the Propaganda Bureau. So, I mean, they started off as a propaganda machine. They were a brainwashing machine from the beginning. And then in 1920 is when it became the Tavistock Clinic. So the Tavistock Clinic, which was named after... The 11th uh, Duke of Tavistock, uh, the Marquis of Tavistock, who was uh, Hastings Russell. Now, he is, he donates this building to specifically designated for doing the uh, shell shock therapy research on the soldiers. And that's what's credited as the original research for Tavistock. If you look in Wiki, it'll tell you yes. that that's where it all started. Um, it also tells you that there's a lot of conspiracy series theories swirling around <laughs> Tavistock, yeah. which when it makes Wikipedia, like you gotta think they've got to address it. But yeah. yes, so yeah, uh, yes, yeah, so that was the first thing is that they they said they were taking, and of course, like that just opened such a can of worms. That explains JFK to me in a nutshell. Like that, the idea was that they. People are so susceptible when they're in shock and they could use mass shock to make radical, like, paradigm shifts in the culture. And that's where it all started was that. That's absolutely right. And that was uh, John Rowling. Oh, so maybe maybe the trench warfare thing was, like, actually, I mean, that might be— going too far to think they plan that in advance. But I just said nothing could be worse than trench warfare and chemical warfare. It's like as if you were looking for the worst possible type of war you could have, and they did it to their own people, and then they exploited it. Yeah. So Well, and it advances with the technology, right? So, you know, they start yes, off yes, with, yes. the, you know, the a lot of it is the psychological warfare. The psychological warfare is kind of the same through line throughout all stages of war. Of course, I think that's ramped up. It's even worse now. But with each stage of technology, right, like the gunpowder takes it to another level. Then you have the industrial. Then, of course, now then the nuclear. So it, with each phase, it just it ramps it up. But it's yes, the war is still. But when you're ta- what you're talking about is that is Brees developed the Tavstock method. And he became the, he was the co-founder, he was also known as the co-founder of the World Federation of Mental Health later in 1948, but he was the director of uh, Tavistock, um, sorry, he was the deputy director of Tavistock, and he became the director in 1932, but he developed the Tavistock method, which is exactly what you're talking about, it's what we we think of, this trauma-based mind control, but what he said is it controls stress in what he called a psychologically controlled environment in order to make people firmly give up the to make people give up their firmly entrenched beliefs under peer pressure. That's like one of that's the primary and I'll give you a bunch of other quotes from Reese because they kind of just made me sick. Um but <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the consensus building. Right. Yeah, is using peer pressure to get you to abandon your beliefs. Exactly. So 
But I wanted to tell you about the Duke of Tavistock, right? So it was her brand, Arthur Russell, who was the 11th Duke of Tavistock. He donates this building for shell shock therapy. So his name was Herbrand Arthur Russell. Usually they just say the 11. They don't give the name, so yeah, I have to look it up. Right. Herbrand Arthur. But he was a Russell. He's a Russell. Now, the Russell Russell yeah. is a name in the Illuminati in, like, the Yale. Well, his um, father. Skull his, and Bones yes, is called exactly. the Russell Trust. 1832, William Huntington Russell and Alonzo Taft created Skull and Bones. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to uh, scoop you there. No, you you knew. I just remembered it because I was researching the Boston Marathon bomber who was married to Kathleen Russell or Catherine Russell, Russell. whose father was like an, or grandfather was CIA, Skull and Bones, and their name was Russell. And I was trying to connect them to the Russell Trust. I didn't, I couldn't actually connect those two dots, but boy, it didn't matter because by then there were worms everywhere. (laughs) All gloves are off. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so and he was also Order of St. John, the Knight of Grace, Order of Garter, Order of British Empire, and a fellow of the Royal Society. So, Perfect. yeah, so I just thought that was interesting. There, there's a recognition oh, yeah. to Skull and Bones and the Illuminati. <laughs> yeah, so when you say they, I mean, it's not some broad, like you can really narrow it down. And then you see how they like the same names come up over and over again and yeah. they're only one or two degrees of separation across like um i you know the different fields yeah, the different the spheres lines. of human really society. Yeah. and that's why i know this is tedious the way that i do this but i think it's so important for people to see the direct lineage who connected mm-hmm. to who who was trained by who because when you start to see that people always say well how they i think you have like two camps it's either the people who they want to blame everything on one person or one entity, or you have the opposite where people are like, oh, this is so many people and so many moving parts. And so there's no way they could all be connected. But actually, no, it's kind of a little of both. And when you start to see how all of these people are interconnected and interwoven, I think that then it paints a much clearer picture. So that's why I know it's super tedious the way that I go through all of the different names and how they're connected. But I think that it really does help to understand this. It's not It's not that there is just one entity, and it's not that it's all disjointed. It's that there's a shared worldview, but then there's a lot of organizations that bring people under an umbrella. And that's part of why Tavistock, I think, is so powerful, is because there's so many organizations and entities that are under Tavistock that are connected through Tavistock. So I think that's part of what they're why they have so much power, and it's also why they're able to, for so long, remain kind of in secret. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, did you see, I had tweeted at you yesterday, the Tavistock like homepage, and it's so bizarre because every picture, it's like, meet our staff, and there's like and it's all uh, a lamp, you know, yes, yeah, it's, it's super blurry, or like, you know, and this is our, our, you know, head of whatever, and there's like a lamp in front of his face, and it's just so, it's like literally shrouded in secrecy. You, you can't find one picture. That, I mean, you would never post a blear, blurry picture. It's almost like they want, you know, they're advertising their occultedness. They do. Well, um, I don't know if I should jump to this right now, but Reese actually talks about how they should be fifth columnists. I'll, I'll just read it now because that's exactly what you're talking about. Um, so Reese says, uh, let me see if I have the quote before that. Um, 
Okay, so in, this is a little bit later, but it's in 1940. Uh, I'll just read it now because I think it's relevant. But, but he was at the meeting for the National Council for Mental Hygiene in the UK, uh, Strategic Planning for Mental Health. The, the National Council of Mental Hygiene was, you know, it's connected to all these mental hygiene organizations, which are essentially just fronts for eugenics, really. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really what they were involved in. But he says, we can therefore justify viably stress our particular point of view with regard to the proper development of the human psyche, even though our knowledge may be incomplete. We must aim to make it permeate every educational activity in our national life. How did they aim to do that? They wanted to infiltrate the most pervasive institutions in social culture, the education system and the church. Quote, public life, politics, and industry should all be within our spheres of influence, uh, do you want to say something first and then I'll go on? Or I just wanted to say that it, don't gloss over the fact that he said we actually don't know for sure if yeah. we're right. We don't, it's incomplete. Yeah, Solinsky incomplete used to say that too. Like it's more important to take action well, than Solinsky to be right. He was very much modeled after Tavistock. And oh, after yeah. this, uh, print the principles of uh, John Rawling Reese. And you'll, you'll see that here. So he says, if we are to infiltrate the professional and social activities of other people, I think we must imitate the totalitarians and organize some sort of fifth column activity. If better ideas on mental health are to progress and spread, we as the salesmen must lose our identity. Let us all therefore very secretly be fifth columnists. And he said that wow. in the whole journal. The fifth- Fifth column is to infiltrate and transform society from within rather yes. than just an out-and-out shooting revolution. The direct, it's to make that transformation. Yeah, the, the literal definition is a group of people who act traitorously and subversively out of a secret sympathy with an enemy of their country. That's Oh, interesting. Wow. Okay. Yep. So, and, and that was what he was advocating. Aspiring to, yeah, right, advocating, and, yeah, wow. Yeah, and Alinsky did take a lot of his tactics. Um, from Well, he was definitely, I mean, I hate to use the word communist because it's so propaganda-y, but so Alinsky it would be a fifth columnist working in favor of the communists. Absolutely, sure. yeah. So, okay, so he was, so this is the, and then... Okay, so in 1921, around the same time, Bowlby and Sargent were also conducting the same type of shell shock therapy research. They were kind of like an offshoot um, at the Mosley Hospital under the Mapother Institute of Psychiatry, and that's where they did insulin shell shock therapy research. So, Wait, insulin shell shock therapy? Yes, that was where they would give like you know, like oh, injection. insulin? Yeah. Oh, wow. Which you that's knew dangerous. could be deadly. Yeah. They knew. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah. So I, I think that's worth noting, though. They do all of these kind of experiments where, you know, they know that people could be, you yeah. know, disabled permanently, could die. It's really, yeah, they just do these experiments. Yeah, that's why it really can't be a science because it's unethical. Yeah, I mean, I guess it could to do be a human science, experiments, but it, it's but I would definitely. But how can you science require the scientific method? I mean, you can like it or not, but one of the tenets is that you create a hypothesis, mm-hmm. you conduct an experiment, and you observe the outcome, and okay. you can't really do that in psychology and be ethical. No, but I don't know. Does science require that you have an ethical 
foundation. Oh, no, I'm just saying they can't really make it a science. Well, I guess they can behind the scenes. And this that's what this book was saying, that in Russia they can because they yeah, didn't care. Think- but... Yes, yes, sorry. They could, but they, and they, they may not. in the you know, United States at this time. It would, so. it would be frowned upon, let's Yeah, just say, they would the definitely. <laughs> board of ethics, yes. for sure. So, yes. Bowlby was friends with Julian Huxley. So, we all know Julian Huxley, brother of uh, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. But Julian Huxley was also a eugenicist, uh, you know, with UNESCO, the UN. Uh, he coined the term transhumanism. Um he was also, we'll later see the connection. So H.G. Uh, Wells was very involved in Tavistock. He was one of those, when I was saying earlier that they invited 25 authors and uh, that, you know, they two were engaged in these like propaganda reports and books. Um, those, Wells was like one of them. And it was like Kipling, um, a whole bunch of really big names. I'd have to go back and look at all 25 of them, but. Yeah, so, uh, but Julian Huxley coined transhumanism. He was he lo- wrote letters to Darwin. He was connected to H.G. Wells. So uh, Thomas Henry Huxley was the grandfather. He was the teacher to um, to Darwin. No, he was known. Sorry, but forget, forgive me. So he was a teacher to H.G. Wells, and then H.G. Wells taught the Huxley brothers. Thomas Henry Huxley, the grandfather, was known as Darwin's bulldog. So he was very enamored with Darwin, very uh, a huge proponent and advocate of uh, Darwinism, which, of course, later becomes social Darwinism. Yeah, there was, in this book I mentioned earlier, Makers of the Modern Mind, the section on Darwin talks about how, how two things, that Darwin was hesitant to bring this forward because he knew it would undermine uh, Christianity. And and maybe it was Huxley. I'll have to look into look at the book again. Somebody was like, "Yeah, yeah, bring it, bring it." <laughs> well, Tavistock was very instrumental in undermining Christianity. Um, and it, it, when you start to look at the uh, people who were again, this is why it's really important to look at the individuals and what their belief system is, what their family lines are, what their connections and training is, because many of them do come from occultic roots. And when you look at even like the Illuminati Manifesto is so similar to the New World Order. You know, it is all about overthrowing all the monarchs, throwing over, overthrowing all religion, um, because they wanted to funnel everything in towards a one world. Um so Tavistock was largely focused on overthrowing Christianity uh, because they wanted to take down uh, the Western civilization, destroy the family so they could direct people towards essentially what I we would now call like a new world order. Although they, they used the term back then. Wilson was talked about new world order. And do they ever like actually say so that they will buy more lollipops or so that we can control them forever or so that they are our slaves? I think one of the passages was about like from Algis Huxley about basically being an open air concentration camp that people won't mind because you're going to give them Soma or whatever. Yeah. So they'll willingly, uh, let me see if I can remember the exact quote. Here it is. Uh, he says that in the next generation or so, a pharmacological method would arise to make people love their servitude, producing yeah. a dictatorship without tears, a kind of painless concentration camp for entire society so that people will, in fact, have their liberties taken away from them, but they will enjoy it. I got this from Miriam Hanine's, uh, Hanine's 
yeah, her Substack where she gives hat tips you for turning her on to Tavistock. So oh, there you go. Right back at you. Full circle. I love it. Yes, yes, yes. So that, yes. Yeah, so that's what he said. They, they will love it. They'll be into it. They will have no liberty. Yeah. They'll be happy. They'll, they'll choose their servitude happily. And yes. yeah, they'll be drugged yes. on Soma. Totally. Yep. Um, this is just the general, and then we'll go into the deeper. Uh, but okay, Kurt. So, 1933, Kurt Lewin emigrates to the United States, and he was one of the yeah. And he also worked for the OSS, which then became the CIA, of course. He okay, and Cecile's puppet, Cyril Burt, also worked for Tavistock Clinic. He was trained by William McDougall of the Society for Psychical Research which was founded in 1882 by the Cecile with the Hermic, Hermetic Order of Golden Dawn. This is why I say it, ha- it really does have a cult root. I know people think that that's so like, uh, I, well, I hate to say they use the word conspiratorial, but that makes no sense. So like when you actually look at the difference of the definition of what conspiratorial means, it makes no sense that they project that word onto it. But really what people think it sounds very, uh, you know, hyperbolic or paranoid. But the truth is when you start looking into these people, the roots are occultic. They just are. This isn't, it's not a judgment call. This is just, that's the, that's where these roots are. Um, And here you see it. I mean, it's the the hermetic order of uh, the golden dawn. It was an organization of secret service propagandists who use an image of the spiritualist, occultic or skeptic, as a cover to pave the way for the New Age Church. Their logo was the trident of Neptune, and it was associated with stage illusion, spirituality, um, and they conducted research on drugs and hypnosis. So McDougall is also a member of the British Psychoanalytic Society, the British Eugenics Society, and the president of Mensa. And it's worth noting, I... Oh, no way! Mensa was created for eugenics. That, that was the purpose wow. of Mensa. To get people, to find people who should be the breeders? To find people who should be the breeders and who should be exterminated, wow. right? Yeah. because well, Would they two, exterminate the smart people? Because Mensa's for smart people, right? Right, but there are two types of, uh, of eugenics, right? There's what they call positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Positive eugenics was this idea that certain people should breed and propagate. This is part of why they're so incestuous ancestral, right? Because you want to keep it within these bloodlines. And then there was the other idea that certain people should not propagate and that, you know, there should be a depopulation. This is where abortion comes into play. And when they, the abortion movement initially, you know, they were pretty overt about it initially that it was a eugenics movement and it was Mm -hmm. too targeted at people like the blacks, the disabled, um, you know, it was a large group, lot, lots of various groups that they were targeting, but they were essentially people who were poor who they didn't feel should mm-hmm. uh, propagate. So, yeah, but Mensa was, and they don't anymore, but Mensa up until not that long ago actually had a eugenics page on the website. I mean, it was wow. not like it was secret. Like, I always suspected that, but then I started doing the research and I was like, because I also thought it was just interesting, all this, like, IQ testing of kids. So yes. weird. You know, I, I you, you know I my story, it was just like that the CIA tried to recruit me when I was seven years old. And I'm like, why were they even why? doing, yeah, I'm like, why were they even doing testing when I was seven? You know, it's like. Because you took a test like in first grade? I, so, I mean, I took lots of tests much younger than Yeah, that. yeah, me too, but. But, and, right, so I, 
I, the question is always like, how did they find you? How did they, this was weird. I mean, they just did, they came into the school. Uh, they, they told us it was the police. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense, but they put on a skit for us. And then with this skit, I, uh, I was then each student was called into the principal's office and we were supposed to tell them what we saw. What we watched the skin, then we had to recount, you know, the scene that we saw essentially. And I did and I gave a lot of detail. You know, I just the whole thing looked weird to me. Like we weren't really sitting and watching. They were positioned strangely. And then there were just weird things like some of the guys had their hats backwards and you know, it was they, I, I would tell, like, what color nail polish some of the women were wearing. So I gave a lot of detail, and they called my parents up to tell that, that you know, they were like, your daughter has an eidetic memory. We would, like, talk to you about recruiting her, the CIA. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I mean, that just makes so much sense. Like, there's this uh, Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth where I was they in that. study— I was, no, f- yeah. I, oh, I, when I was in are you a Fed, Courtney? Did <laughs> no. they say yes to the CIA? No, my mom. Was, Were you in Lady Gaga's class? <laughs> yeah, right. No, but she, yeah, my mom hung up on them. So I didn't go, but I did go to the John wow. Hopkins program. It was a summer program, and they recruited. It was a yeah. John Hopkins gifted uh, program. Yeah, I, yes. I, when and I was moving, it's to I find found them. The, the thing, yeah. yeah. So Zuckerberg was in that, and I saw when he was on. on uh, testifying before Congress a couple of years ago, I was like, holy shit, I know exactly what that was about. He was a classics major, and he transferred to Exeter as a junior. I'm not going to get into how weird that yeah. is, but I was like, really? And his mom was a psychiatrist, and I, or and there's very little information about her. And I looked at that when he was at Congress, and I said, and they then he switched to computer science after that, and I said that he got recruited because of his memory. That's mm-hmm. why he's got that job. Wow. If you listen to him in Congress, it's like he's just he just can remember it all. Right. He can recite. And that's all there was to it, in my opinion. That's crazy. And then you're making me think that's true. I, oh, I, it probably is. That makes yeah, a lot of and sense. Yeah, and I know they recruit history majors because they're, they're meant to memorize a lot of stuff. Right. Wow. Well, I definitely don't. So apparently eidetic memories are only 2% of children. Only children have eidetic memories. You grow out what of it. What is that? So eidetic is similar to photographic, but it's experiential. Right. So you remember, it's, you have a sensorial recollection. So it's not just like seeing a picture and recalling it. You remember the whole su- surroundings. So you might have like, you know, your the auditory uh stimuli, the visual, the smells, uh, whatever experience you were having, wow. it's as if you're immersed in it. It's an immersive recall. Wow. Um, but I apparently do not children that. Wow. outgrow that because it, it would stunt their emotional uh, and cognitive development. So for kind of functional reasons, children outgrow it. And it's only 2% of children that have it. Now, some of them will go on to retain a, you know, very strong photographic memory or a very strong autographic uh, memory, audiographic memory, but they don't actually have the eidectic. I don't have either of them anymore. But <laughs> That's so fascinating because just, okay, so they have that where they find those kids at that age in this way. Right. And I've suspected numerous other ways that they find stuff like that, not just like go out and interview right. everybody to see who's going to hit it, but anybody who does something weird, like Fidel Castro wrote a letter to FDR when he was 12 saying, I'll do anything you want. And there's that picture is in, I think that's in this 
it might be in this book, but actually, it's, uh, no, it's in Servando Gonzalez's Psychological Warfare in the New World Order, for sure. Uh, so if there's a photograph of it. You can definitely find it. And, like, James Comey had a weird thing when he was 17 where he absolutely swore that he witnessed against a guy, bore false witness against somebody who later won millions of dollars against the government because he was falsely convicted. And I think they were like, that kid has an unusual gift for lying. And they roped him in. That's what I think about him. There's a few cases like that. And I'm like, I think they find, I think Julian Assange, I think they find these people really, really young. They do. And, well, and you, and, sorry, yeah. go on, yeah. Yeah, that's and all. Then they, and yeah. then they groom them, right? Um, well, I mean, we saw that with like MK Ultra, right? Project Monarch. They were looking for very specific things. And then they would, I mean, I honestly think so much of uh, MK Ultra came out of these Tavistock techniques. And I think they've continued, even though they don't call it MK Ultra anymore. But, you know, supposedly Definitely. it was shut down in the 70s. But I, I don't believe that. Marilyn Monroe, was she MK Ultra? They I think say it was. She was. I think yeah, a lot. I think most of them were honestly. I mean, they're they say even now, like they. I think there is a. a, a I don't know if it was Frank Sinatra or somebody basically said, "Yeah, that I used to go to parties with this chick who was there as an MK Ultra person." Like, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I I see it now. So many of the even today, these celebrities like they have their breakdown, like this, basically a psychotic break. If you yes. watch it. When they're 30, but that's when the programming yeah. starts to break down. Yeah, so I look at, um, you know, some of these, just any superstar. I don't want to, like, yeah. criticize any specific sure. individuals, but I just feel like, so, like, Michael Jackson, for example. Like, he obviously, you know, like, you can't bear that. So when I see super megastars, like, I feel bad for them. Oh, I'm like totally. that. You, the burden of that, the weight of that, and, and to stand up. I used to get stage fright on the radio where you don't actually even see anybody, <laughs> you know? And, oh, I, yeah. and I would just think, wow, could you imagine looking at just tens of thousands of people? Like how your psyche is not designed for that. Well, I think it's much worse than that. I don't know that that's what's really so traumatic for them. Most of these people are literally traumatized and programmed. Um, so they're, a lot of them come from a lineage. So like you look at things like Project Monarch, and I think they, a lot of Hollywood is, you know, using the same kind of principles. Project Monarch, they would take uh, intergenerational uh, trauma and they would often traumatize within utero uh, because then the, the child has a more of an inclination towards uh, the submission because of the, and they're much more susceptible to the programming. So they would take that. There was a couple of other like prerequisites. They wanted uh, children, uh, they wanted children who had IQs over 120 because they were much more likely to use dissociation as a coping mechanism. So, we Oh, that's what Mensa's for. Actually, to tell you the truth, my mother had me Joined Mensa when I was like a teenager. I don't like thirteen. I don't know why. I mean, it was just that moment. I just sure. took the test. I didn't actually do it. I didn't go. Right. But I was like, "What there are you doing?" You know, too. They they don't have meetings yeah. very often, or yeah. So, but you know, I just I think she thought I was like it was her baby. I was the sure. youngest of nine, and she's like, she's so smart. So she got me this test, and I remember thinking, like, what is this for? Like, where? What's the point of this? And I've always wondered, like, what was the point of that? Point? Because there wasn't, like, a club. I wasn't playing chess no. with other smart kids. It was nothing right. to it. It was just a way to identify. And we did actually have an engineer, like, just a, you know, an engineering college came to our house once to see if I wanted, you know, to recruit me. But I don't think it was related. But, you know, you never know. 
You never, you never know. know because if you get a certain IQ, if that was the point, that would make sense. Like there was nothing there but just test your IQ. Mm-hmm. That was it. And I'm sure, well, I'm sure it wasn't private. Like that information went somewhere. No. And I look at the time periods too. I mean, now I feel like they're doing very different testing with children. But I feel like in our generation, that was a big one. They probably don't even really have to do the form. They, they, yeah, because they're phasing out the formal testing. And I think probably they get more from likes. Yeah, so it's not just that, it's SEL. So through the social emotional learning program, there's a lot of tech ed. And so they test, and I think they're doing it to also create, right? Often the data mining, it's cyclical. It's a feedback loop. So they they test the kids and then they beta test. So they test and they use the, the responses that they get. They collect that information and then they pivot and they they fine tune it and that is used to program and i think that's a, that's what's happening now with the kids is there because everything is done through the devices and a lot of their learning is but it's not just using the device they're doing a lot of uh, tracking surveilling and data mining you could it. as far as like behavioral feedback you could train people very quickly very quickly so i was taking media a, does it yeah, I was taking a test like, are you a racist? And I was like, what ridiculous test is that? Clearly, by the, you know, halfway through, I knew the questions they were trying to get me to say. Right. So I just, you know, I answered every question they wanted. And they were just like, wow, no one's ever been less of a racist than you. And I'm like, yes, that is true. That is true. But it is also true that I saw, you know, what you were asking. And so they trained me. You know, I thought, hi, I saw what they were asking, but they trained me in how to answer those questions. And I think what you're saying is like you can go around, you know, it can it can just keep cycling. Yeah, and, and I, th- I think that's much. what they do now because they, they're looking for different things than what they used to be looking for. Well, they're definitely causing a lot of mental illness. Yeah. And like I this think- anxiety epidemic is crazy. Crazy. Well, and I think a lot of that is uh, an extension of Tavistock. So yeah, definitely, I think so. And there, I definitely, I want. There are two things I absolutely have to ask you. Okay. At yeah. the end of the rundown, but keep going. Okay. So uh, yeah. So right now, I'm just giving a really brief overview, kind of timeline, until we get to the Tavistock Institute. Uh, so then, okay, 1943, the Tavistock Group was formed. Now, I've seen a lot about this, but. It's really hard because when you, if you do a search for Tavistock Group, you find in 19, I think, 76, and it's like an American, it's not related. But this group was formed and controlled by the Russell, the Cecils, the Forbes, the Parsons, the Carnegie Mellon families, and the Spencer families. And it was Spencer, that's Winston Churchill and Diana. Exactly. Princess Di. Yes. Tavistock investigates public reactions and around this time, uh, because this was during the uh, World War II, they also were doing things like testing uh, bombing on civilians. Churchill did that. Yes. He, he's the first one to break that well, he fifth was wall, as it were. Yeah. 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 Fourth wall, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, um, keep going. Yeah, so and then Risa was made president of the World Federation of Mental Health and uh, under the control of the UN, the WHO. So I, I just thought that was, you know, interesting to point out is how Tavistock is connected to all of these global NGOs. And then in 1946, Tav- the Tavistock Clinic becomes the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations. And that was through a Rockefeller grant. Now that stuff all gets very interesting um, because it was through 
so Rockefeller himself was like actually not a, he wasn't actually a pharma guy. He was actually like a holistic medicine kind of guy. But he was a snake oil salesman. He was a, well, yes. So he, well, that's what he became, but he became that, oh. right? So, so there's kind of a series, a chain of events that led him down that path. So they had the monop- monopoly on the petroleum industry at the time, right? So then it was the, they commissioned this Flexner report, right? Abraham Flexner writes the Flexner report. And that is where they, uh, start to bring the the transition into petropharmaceuticals. So it, so they started to defund, it was Rockefeller's funding a lot of the medical industry, but now they would defund any schools that were not pharmaceutically trained. So they were no longer funding like naturopathic or pharmaceutical. And they also defunded the uh, certification for that. So like the licensing um so it was to push everything towards these petropharmaceuticals so that they would have a monopoly on that. But this is where it gets very interesting because the advisor for the Rockefeller, the financial advisor, was Max Mason. And he brought on Alan Gregg to be the medical director. Now, Alan Gregg was trained under Flexner. So this took me a long time to find this connection because I was like, why? Mm. Alan Gregg was very largely instrumental in pushing the Rockefellers towards towards psychiatry. And at the time, nobody understood why because it was like, it wasn't a profitable, lucrative field at the time, and it was not even very well known. It was like, why would we go into psychiatry? It's going to be so expensive, and yeah, there's a really just no reason. Yes, Rock of the Rock. Sorry, the Rockefeller Medicine Men uh, by Richard Brown is a is a is a find. Yeah, that's a great one, and so I couldn't figure that out, but then I found that. It was, uh, Alan Gregg was, uh, his mentor was Abraham Flexner. And he was the one who pushed them into psychiatry um, and had decided that they were going to be, you know, largely funding psychiatry. So, of course, that's when you you get this switch from the Tavistock Clinic to Tavistock Institute of Human Relations was in, uh, they started in 1947, let me skip ahead a little bit here because, yeah, the Tavistock uh, Clinic then moved. So they actually separated in 1947, um, and they separated. The clinic moved to the Swiss Cottage in Camden. I don't know. But then the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations was officially formed. And interestingly enough, that's the same time that the OSS becomes the CIA. <laughs> yes. Right? And we have all these, like— overlap of people in the OSS that become the CIA, right? Jung, Carl Jung, was a double agent for the SS and the OSS. What? He was agent 488. That was his number. Yeah. Wow. So he told the Germans that he was in the SS, but he was really working for the OSS? He was working. Well, it's hard to know what— Or vice versa. (laughs) And that I don't know for sure. I just know uh, he I'm, was. I'm assuming dumb. that it was. Well, yeah, thing. that was. I mean, that's what they told. I mean, that that's the public that's narrative. What they said. I don't know. We don't know what yeah. he told them. Yeah, who knows? Operation up. Paperclip. Yeah, that could exactly. have been his cover. We don't know. Yeah, I, I, we mm-hmm. don't. But yes, the narrative, the public uh, uh, 
public narrative was that he was working for the OSS. Right. But he was also working with the SS. He was a double agent. And that was his number, 488. This concludes the first half of our introduction to the Tavistock Institute with Courtney Turner. If you would like to hear the second half immediately and without commercial interruption, please subscribe to Deep Dives Premium on iTunes and get a 30-day free trial. Hope you've enjoyed the show.